Hello and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances and I work for The Reader. We're beginning this episode in a slightly different way as I'm joined now by my colleague, Isabel Lobo. Hello, Isabel. Hi. Isabel is at The Reader on a year-long internship. She's worked on anthologies for our volunteers to use in their shared reading groups. She's assisted with the production of The Reader magazine and has generally made herself invaluable. All staff at The Reader take part in shared reading whenever possible. And I wanted to ask you about that, Isabel. I know you were a keen reader before you came to work here, but had you ever done anything like shared reading before? No, I'd never done anything quite like shared reading before. I've attended book clubs previously, but it's not really comparable because in book clubs you spend an hour talking about one novel and it tends to be more of an overview and looking at the text as a complete body of work, whereas with shared reading, it's much more depth-based where you can spend an hour looking at two pages of a novel. In school, I'd read poems and novels in the classroom, but again, it's not like shared reading. It's more academic-based, and you're not taking the time to think about the feelings the work has elicited from you and how your own experiences might be similar to what you're reading. So what sort of thing have you read in shared reading groups while you've been at The Reader? I've read a lot of poetry in shared reading and prior to coming to The Reader, poetry was something I definitely shied away from. I never really had the patience to stick with it, which meant I never really connected with poetry all that well. But that's changed and you know, I remember reading The Prelude by William Wordsworth, where we read just one extract over two or three sessions. And it's not the easiest of poems to get your head around, but having that space to bounce ideas and explore what the poem meant to me made all the difference. And I ended up really enjoying the poem and even asking the reader leader to bring more poetry, especially older poems, to the next session. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that. Um, so among the um, work you've done for us, you've recorded an interview that we're going to hear now. Um, so tell me a bit about Neil Griffiths and why you wanted to talk to him for the podcast. So Neil was a primary school head teacher for about 13 years and now has moved over to education consultancy and is also a children's picture book author on the side. Um, he was doing a workshop at the school my mum works at about the power of reading and how to inspire a love of it in children. At the time, we were working on issue 76 of the Reader magazine, which focused on the work our children and young people team are doing. So my brain was very much focused on the relationship between literature and kids. So I decided to go along to the workshop. And Neil's passion for the well-being of children was so inspiring. And he had some really moving anecdotes to do with his own personal journey of literature. And I really felt this was something that should be shared. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think his passion really comes across. I think he's someone who has really high standards for teaching and working with children and for books for children and how they should be read aloud and um, and also for parents too. And as I have two children myself, I felt his message of the importance of giving them your full attention and focused attention 
um, that message comes across really clearly from your conversation. I have very much the uh, same impression. He's very uh, forthright with his opinions and has this almost fearlessness to him when he's talking about uh, the power of books and why it's so important. You know, whether you agree or disagree with what he has to say, it sparks a much needed and interesting conversation and is definitely worth thinking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's hear that now. And um, so that conversation was recorded in October 2022. Okay, brilliant. Thanks so much, Isabel. Thank you. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you. I know you're here to talk about the power of reading and how to develop a love of reading in children, but could you give us a bit of an introduction about who you are and what you do? Well, I'm an escaped head teacher. <laughs> I was a, a head, obviously a teacher and a head teacher for 13 years. And I then was approached by the government um, because of a government department, because of some of the work that I was doing with parents, which was a big passion of mine. Um, and they offered me a year off and I was very excited, thinking that would recharge my batteries. And I was being given the chance to promote the work I was doing and a resource which was called a story sack. Um, and one year became a lot more because we were so overwhelmed that um, I actually had three years worth of bookings within a month. We were just overwhelmed. So the government in the end kept adding my years and I did six months for them. And at that point I was traveling all over the world and loving every moment. So I'm in my 26th year as an educational consultant and I will go anywhere and work with anyone who loves children and wants to give them the best start in life. So you said you were doing some work with parents before the government approached you. What sort of work were you doing? Well, in our school, um, it was a big school, big primary school, but our parents put a lot of pressure on our children, um, particularly in terms of reading. They were obsessed with what colour band were the children on, when were they going up the next shelf, as if reading was like a stepladder of hardness. And so I knew that that was one particular area that I wanted to take the pressure off, hence the story sack idea. But also, we realised that the closer you can get to parents, the more effective you will be in educating children because parents have to take you know, big responsibility and we need to be their partners. And so every aspect of school life, we involved parents. We did a lot of home visits. Um, we had all sorts of initiatives to do with encouraging talk, encouraging reading. We did dozens of workshops with parents, daytime, evenings, Saturdays. Um, and we were really very close to parents um, and it made such a difference. A school or a nursery is only as good as its manager or head teacher. And a huge skill of a head teacher and a huge job is that you, you need to know how to engage with parents of every kind. And, and I see a small trend towards, I sometimes almost want to call head teachers are you the manager? Now, I know they've got to take on so many roles now, but when I was a head teacher, I was proudest of the bit that 
I was the teacher, but I was the head of it now. And I spent as much time as I could alongside the children and my staff. I spent at least 50% of my time. Now, it was a killer, and I had to do a heck of a lot of work in the evening. But I saw my role as not just working with children. I had to learn as a young, I was young at the time, of how do you talk to parents? How do you gain their confidence? Um, and it, it took years, it took years, but we've just got to keep chipping away at it, try every way possible. Um, and just give parents the message that schools are struggling. They really are struggling because so much is expected of them and I'm afraid we need to expect the same of parents. Interesting. I'd like to dive in a bit more about reading culture and how schools kind of promote reading culture. I know right now there's a big push from primary schools to increase vocabulary size. There's been a lot of research into the benefits of having a larger vocabulary size in children. Why is it so important and what does reading have to do with it? Well, you get possibly, I'm not sure of the percentage, but your language comes largely from your vocabulary ability and language ability comes largely from two places mm -hmm. your parents and by being read to by by people who can read the story well that's where you, your language largely comes from um, and naturally if you're in a home where nobody's ever talking or sitting around a meal and you know talking together or ever interacting is it surprising mm -hmm. that our children are coming in with fewer and fewer words in their little heads um, but what's wonderful about reading is it's a lovely intimate cozy enjoyable activity but what you're doing is you're exposing children um, to vocabulary you would very rarely use often in your own vocabulary in your own day-to-day -day vocabulary because you know we choose wonderful words often to enrich stories so it's really extending that um, and for me story time has to be seen as the most important moment of the day it's not a little filler that you jam in at three o'clock just before the end of the day it's a key activity at a key moment which should be for about middle of the morning is the best time because you're all on fire then by the end of the day you're all done in but we should see that as a, as a real opportunity, not only to do with vocabulary, but so many other things that I could, I could list. You know, I could give you, I could spend the next three hours just telling you what storytelling contributes to their personal development, their emotional development. But there has been this decline in vocabulary because there's been a decline in talking and in interacting. And of course, what does the screen do? Shuts a child up. So that's another big, you know, contributing factor. So you just mentioned the importance of reading to develop emotional health and well-being. And at the reader, we believe something very similar. You know, we think literature is an important tool to helping us cope and live well. Could you speak a bit more about what you think the emotional benefits are for children in reading? Well, what's wonderful about stories is that you expose children to places they certainly haven't yet been to, but maybe we begin to dream of. Uh, you expose them to relationships of every type and emotional responses of every type. You introduce them to characters so that we recognize that people are very, very different. But, and, and some of that is imaginative, but a lot of that is real. And so already you're, you know, you're, what, what I love to see is when the child's listening to a story and you look at them and they're open mouths, a bit like a goldfish, big wide eyes, 
And I call that dreaming with your eyes open. And, and, and I want to encourage that as much as possible. But what's also wonderful about a story time is it's secure, it's safe, um, it's a very intimate, even, even I, I know you have story times that are more gentle than others, and you're also all singing and dancing, but it's a shared experience, it's a rich experience, it encourages the children to want to, to ask questions. But there's so many opportunities. I listened to a class of year fives recently, and I was just bowled over. They were responding to how characters were behaving in a story. Mm. I was, the maturity was was astounding and how they were able to just differentiate well I think that was really selfish it wasn't aggressive it was, and I, I was sitting there thinking my goodness you're learning a, a lot about humankind here um, and so for me it's just such a rich starting point What else inspired your love of reading as a child? How did you get to this position you are in now where you're so passionate about literature? Well, do you know, I don't know if fate or destiny really exists in the way maybe I think it does, but in a sense I was prepared from, from the moment I was born because I was brought up very unusually by a single parent. And when I say unusual, because it was from 1959 when, and it was my dad and that was kind of almost unheard of. But my dad was a storyteller probably from the moment he was born to the moment he died. And he was a wonderful, wonderful father who gave us rich, rich play opportunities. But my dad never missed a night when he would read to us. And he would say wonderfully, my, my brother and I would have had our tea, and he'd say, who's first? And whoever got upstairs and into their pyjamas and under the covers and shouted, ready, got their story. And that was significant because I never had a story with my older brother. Um, and when I asked my dad, he said, well, I wanted my special time with you and then with your brother. And the message I give to parents is, I know you might have more than one child, but if you want it to be the most powerful, as often as you can, can you do your children separately? But my dad exposed me to wonderful stories by a wonderful storyteller. Um, I remember we did Black Beauty one night and we, I had it so many times. And he said, sorry, I'll start again. And I said, why? He said, I forgot to do the voices and you love the voices. And he tried to do 12 horse voices, not easy. Um, and he did Wind in the Willows and it didn't matter how many times I asked for Wind in the Willows, he'd do it again and again with a smile. And it wasn't just he did it well, he did it willingly and, and he knew that both my brother and I loved it. So we were hooked on books before we ever got to school. That could very well have been destroyed because the first book I ever brought home, he took back into school and said, don't ever send these home again. It was Janet and John, and the story was Here We Go, and it was deadly. And he was brave enough at a time when parents just did not go in and challenge or question, but he did. He said, I'll provide him with his books. Can you imagine the books I then got? And you know, and we didn't have much money, but books were number one. Every Saturday, the library, number one. I could have sat there all day. Um, so I was lucky to have that one. And then I, another person who I must give credit to was a lovely lady called Miss Skedge. And she was my teacher for two years in Ivy Lane Primary. 
And that lady, just the way she held a book, made me feel, ooh, inside. You know, she just, the way she opened the book, ready for story time, smoothed down the middle, ready to start. It was magical. And, she, and I knew how much she loved stories. And it was infectious. And I, and I now look back and recognize the power that can be in an adult in just the way that you, you approach, caress, smell. She used to sometimes smell because I, I sometimes smell books. I like to smell the, the new print. Um, so I was lucky. I had a fantastic start and it stayed with me all my life. It's clear that story time has had a big impact on you and you advocate the importance of it when reading for children. How do you think you can make story time more engaging? Okay, well, we certainly need to make it more engaging uh, because I've probably sat through more story times with practitioners than anyone you've ever met. And some of them are deadly. Um, and they're deadly often uh, because number one, the teacher has not read the story first or the practitioner. You cannot read a story cold. You have to have read it at least the day before. And with longer books, I always keep two chapters ahead of the children because I want to know what's... In fact, I have to tell you, normally I've read the whole book before, even with a longer book. But I want to know what's coming, what, what opportunities I'm going to have. So you, you have to have read it before. You have to also choose books that are meant to be read aloud because some are not actually designed necessarily. Um, I'll give you an example. Little picture books called Meg and Mog. Lovely little stories, but they're all speech bubbles. It's, an, it's a nightmare. You don't know which speech bubble to read next. So it's not designed for that read aloud. And often practitioners will, will say to me, I know I just picked it up on the way to story time. I wished I hadn't. So that preparation is crucial. But then if you're going to be a good storyteller, you cannot be shy. I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy. But actually, even though I come over as being obviously pretty confident, I am really shy, but I've learned to cover it. You know, I suffer from stage fright, which people think I just walk on and do it. Um, so I go through all the same things inside before I, I work with children or perform with children. But you, you do it because you see the little faces and you think, that's why I'm digging deep. That's why I'm digging deep. Because I've had story times with a thousand children, which is ludicrous in China. They just, so many children. And I think, why am I doing this? But every inch of me, I dig deep, you know. You, you find something in you that you didn't even know was there because you're so desperate to hold those children in, in that magical moment, hopefully, that you're having. So you, you can't be shy. You've got to be able to let it go. And also, a lot of practitioners will often say, oh, I can do a story, but I don't want there to be other adults in the room. Well, where did you think you were going to work in an isolation unit? You've got to get over it. Um, and I might as well tell you something I'm feeling strongly at the moment, and it's just because of my daily work in, in you know, settings. There are still too many people working with children that shouldn't be. They just don't know how they tick. They don't know how to talk to children. They don't know how to just look with a gesture that lifts their spirits. Um, and, and so 
I'm not saying, again, it's easy. Some people, it's natural. And it, the ones that are natural are the ones that usually were exposed to it themselves as a young child. Because actually, when I'm telling a story, my brother has been and watched me several times. And he'll say to me, I thought our dad was doing it rather than you. Well, of course, because he's inside me, you know, because he was my role model. Um, so everyone can do it, and you do get better, because I remember a very young teacher in my school, and he doesn't mind me telling you this, he was in his first year of teaching, and I went past his classroom, and I thought there was a dying wasp in there. And I thought, oh, dear. 40 years he'll be telling stories like this. I thought, I can't stand it. And he said, I'm going to do two more chapters. And I did a terrible thing. I pressed the fire alarm because I thought, we've got to get children out of this school. I can't bear this. But I then worked with him. And in fact, as a whole staff, we, we did all sorts of practice that he transformed. But it is in all of us and we can do it. But yeah, and, and it will be different because we're different personalities. And that's fine. That's okay. But just let your personality out. For parents at home that are wanting to read to their kids and have story time, is there any tips that you would give them to improve their reading aloud or anything that you would recommend that they try to improve their skills? Number one, find the time. We know that fewer and fewer children are even being read to at home. And even those children who made a big drop recently, and even if they are reading to them, it's often rushed. Um, you know, it's come on quickly, quickly. No, 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 no. If you're not feeling up to it, I say to both parents and practitioners, if you're not in the mood, don't do it because it'll have no impact. Wait till you feel, you feel up to it. So it's about finding the time, but finding time when you can be calm and it can be magical. You can't rush it. And I would rather a parent did three lovely story times a week than seven. Um, you know, make that time rich. So you've got to find the time, the right place, you know, where you want to snuggle sometimes and be together. There's got to be tranquility. Even though the stories might get quite lively, just it's got to start quite. It's got to be a routine. If children, one minute they're at home, one minute they're not, get, get that routine and children start to look forward to that routine. Um, read the story yourself first. Just say it's just the same for parents. Um, and don't feel you've got to do voices because a lot of people panic because they think they. I, I'd love to be able to imitate accents and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love that. But I just have to work with the voice I've got. I can't do a Welsh accent or a Scottish or whatever. I, you know, I'm quite limited, unlike my dad, who was fantastic. So, but just be expressive with your voice. That doesn't mean you have to do accents and goodness knows what. Um, and don't be intimidated or shy with your children. And what I say to parents, have in your head that this could be one of the most important moments in my child's life. Because one of those story times might just light the spark. That, and they think, what? And, and if children want a story again and again, it means it was good. So do it again, even if you have to grit your teeth. My dad, on the 50th time of Wind in the Willows, probably wanted to batter me to death with a book, but he knew this was important, it was part of my reading history. So intimacy, let it go, and, and don't think you're going to be fantastic straight away necessarily. Work at it gently. Earlier on, you mentioned that you developed story stacks. 
which are bags containing a storybook with accompanying materials such as toys and stuff and games. Why did you develop the story sack and why do you think play is so important in facilitating learning? Well, first of all, there was a word, pressure. Our children were under this pressure. And I just, I, I, and I was sat on a train having come to a conference in London and it was about parental engagement and it was suggesting some of the things that we could do as schools. And I was just so worried that some of our children looked anxious and they were so young. And so just in my head, I just had this idea of a cloth bag where the story suddenly burst out the bag and you could recreate that whole story with role play. And it was thanks to the amazing parents in my school, they made 90 story sacks for me. They were out of this world. Um, they made all the soft toys and went to charity shops and got bits. But what it was that I was looking for was pressure off, engagement more, role play together. Because when you role play a story, we tested it. And the children's memory of that story, after they used a story sack, rather than just being told the story, it was dramatic. And of course it was, because they'd got something tactile, something visual to hold on to. But I also wanted a whole experience in that bag, so it wasn't just role play, because there was a non-fiction book to that linked to the fiction to extend. There was a game to play to enrich language, and there was also a CD in there, um, so that children could listen to it as often as they liked, and took a bit of pressure off the parents sometimes, and we made sure it was read well on the CD. So it was kind of a whole package. And, of anything I'd ever done with parents, this really hit off because the parents kept saying, oh, we love these, we love these, which they don't love the normal book bag that children take home. They hate the damn things with Biff children flipping Kipper in. Um, but they couldn't wait to take them home. And for me, anything that involves the word play, and okay, this was role play, but play is probably as equal a passion as is reading for me. Because for me, play is rehearsing life. It's the biggest absorber of the curriculum you could ever imagine. And what do children all do naturally if left alone? They play. For me, it's the absolute preparation for life. It involves every emotion because you get cross. You don't want to take your turn, but it's joyful. So, Because a lot of people say play is fun. Well, sometimes it's not because you often learn lessons from it. But for me, play should last much longer than it does in schools. In my school, in Swindon, because I was so passionate, it actually continued to year six when they were 11. And yes, it was a much you know, more sophisticated type of, of role play within the classroom. Of course it was. But now, I have to say, most schools I go into, year one is where it all ends. Um, and also, again, coming back to my dad, every night when he got home from work, we had at least an hour and a half of the most mucky, imaginative play imaginable. And what that's done is you can probably already tell just from this interview, I'm pretty playful. And that does give you really, I think, good qualities, you know, resilience, um, you'll have a go at anything. You can be irritating, that's the negative side, um, but you're only, neg you're only irritating to people who aren't playful themselves and I don't want to play with them, so I'll just steer clear of them.
So I know you yourself, you're an author, and you've written over 35 picture books. What are the components of a good children's book, and how do they differ from books aimed at older children and teens? Okay. I think one of the words I want is originality. I want something that isn't the same. Because once a month I sit in a bookshop in Piccadilly. I come up to London and it's an independent bookshop. And I just sit on the floor and they seem to ignore me. I think they know who I am now. And I want to look at all the new stuff that's coming out because I get very, very sad and frustrated that so many really good stories never get seen because they don't have the marketing budget. And to have your book marketed is so cost prohibitive. Um, you know, those little books are often on the bottom shelf and they're only spying out rather than seeing the whole cover. They're not in a stand as you go in the door. They're not in the two for threes. And one of the things I'm looking for is, is there something different about it? I love it when I go, oh, because that means there was a surprise. I love that, particularly with young children, because they, they, they need that. I look too at illustrations, because picture books are my big passion. And I kind of write my stories back to front. I'll come up with a character, and kind of a storyline, but if I haven't got an ending that makes you go, wow, I don't bother carrying on, because what am I writing towards? and I need to have my big finish. And so I often go to the finish before I actually get started on the start. And how many stories did, oh, you think I know what's gonna happen, and it, you know, and it was happy ever after, and it was, and you think, this isn't even a story. Where, where was this going? Um, it's obviously got to have really strong characters. Um, so important. Uh, and, and of course, it's got to have a, a, a storyline that holds the child. But as they get older, now teens is not my expertise, but I've actually started, I have a friend who works for a book wholesaler and one of her jobs is reading the latest and she then hands them to me. So I've been reading some, some more teenage books recently. And obviously they make quite a big leap emotionally straight away. Um, obviously they're more challenging in terms of the questions they throw up, the, 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 the language is, is, is often more sophisticated. But what they do is something we should be doing with every book that's written, is they understand the audience. And that's why I get really frustrated by celebrities that often, I'm not saying they're not all, some are good. I've been asked to ghostwrite twice and I refused because the storyline was so ghastly, I didn't even want my name to be associated with it. So it seems like you've had an extremely interesting career trajectory. I'm wondering what's coming next for you, if you've got anything planned in the future? Well, my, my next, in fact, just this morning coming here on the train, I've been working like that because uh, 22 years ago, um, from what was very sad has proved to be the most amazing thing. My partner uh, was dying and we had got very poor support from the health service, but the doctor at the local practice about a week before he died, knocked on the door and said, I'm so sorry, I'm here. And he was with us till the end and without him I'd have gone crazy. So I went to say thank you to him afterwards and he just said to me, when are you coming with me to Africa? And I thought, is this how he thinks I'm going to recover? 
but he was just so determined. I went, oh yes, 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 I will. Not really meaning I would. Well, I did. And I went to the Gambia in West Africa where he'd been supporting for about 20 years. And I just thought, wow, I need to do something here. This is a place I need to be. Um, and I thought, but I'm not going to be one of those people who thinks, hey, I'll change the world or I'll come once or twice and then let it go. I thought, I'm in this for the long. So 22 years later, we have five schools and they are, normally children wouldn't go to school in the Gambia until they're seven, but ours are for five, four, five and six year olds before they go to school. So they get kind of like an infant, you know, key stage one education that they would never otherwise have. And over those 22 years, we wrote together, and it's very much African. This is not little English schools. These are African schools. With, the, with those that were interested, we wrote the first curriculum that the country has ever had for young children. Um, and thanks to friends I've met through education, there were seven of us, um, and we, we're heading out in January. And then I obviously do training virtually every day somewhere in the UK, and I have trained in 66 countries around the world, but I want to slow a bit from that even though it's been the most magical experience because I've seen education at its richest and at its poorest. Uh, it's opened my eyes as an educator, but you know, when you're about to become a pensioner, you want to slow a little bit. So I'll, I'll always go where people are you know, genuine and really, really want to learn. Um, I want to spend more time in Africa and I'm involved in uh, charities to do with adults with mental health. I want to spend more time with them. So never a dull day, which is what I like. Well, thank you so much for appearing on this episode, Neil. You've been a great guest. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. That was Isabel from The Reader, talking to Neil Griffiths, and you can find a link to Neil's website in the description of this episode. Isabel mentioned she was working on issue 76 of the Reader magazine when she first saw Neil speaking at the school where her mum works, and she was struck then by the many parallels between what Neil was saying and the content and stories told in that issue. There's an interview in that issue with one of the Reader's partners, Cheltenham Festivals, about their Reading Teachers Reading Pupils project. That project came about in response to the acknowledged two-year achievement gap between children who read for pleasure and those who don't. There's also an article about the Reader's Reading Heroes project, which arranges for volunteers to read aloud weekly, one-to-one, -one, with looked-after children. The comments from both volunteers and children who take part in Reading Heroes bear out what Neil describes and show exactly how this regular, intimate reading experience can have a transformative effect on the children's confidence and their ability to express themselves. If you want to know more about these projects and the reader's work with children and young people, you can order a copy of issue 76 of the Reader magazine from our website. The poet Elizabeth Jennings said... People talk about new worlds being opened by poetry. But for me, 
the poem Lepanto by G.K. Chesterton showed me an entrance to a world I knew to be mine and that previously I had had only hints and foreshadowings of. Elizabeth Jennings wrote her own poem about that moment of realisation. It's called A Classroom. The day was wide, and that whole room was wide. The sun slanting across the desks, the dust of chalk rising. I was listening, as if for the first time, as if I'd never heard our tongue before as if a music came alive for me. And so it did, upon the lift of language. A battle poem, Lepanto. In my blood the high call stirred and brimmed. I was possessed, yet coming for the first time into my own country of green and sunlight, place of harvest and waiting, where the corn would never all be garnered, but leave in the sun always at least one swathe. So from a battle I learnt this healing peace, language a spell over the hungry dreams, a password and a key. That day is still locked in my mind. When poetry is spoken, that door is opened and the light is shed, the gold of language tongued and minted fresh. And later I began to use my words, stared into verse within that classroom, and was called, at last, only by kind inquiry. How old are you? Thirteen. You are a thinker. More than thought it was that caught me up, excited, charged and changed, made ready for the next fine spell of words, locked into language with a golden key. That's it for this episode of The Reader Podcast. Many thanks to Isabel and to Neil Griffiths Thanks as always to Chris for editing and producing this episode. And lastly, thanks too to our core funders, the Arts Council England, the players of the People Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. I hope you enjoyed listening. If so, please let us know by leaving a review. Until next time, goodbye.